Welcome to WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. WellMed Radio will educate you about health and wellness for seniors and their families throughout Bear County in Central Texas. During the next hour, your hosts Ron Aaron and nurse practitioner Cora Zhuk will share information that will help you improve your health and wellness. And now, here's Ron Aaron and Cora Zhuk. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with our co-host, Cora Juke, you hear us on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. We come to you Sundays at 5 p.m., and you can also get podcasts of all of our shows. Uh, Cora, so uh, you've got a lot of experience as a nurse practitioner, graduate of uh, Texas Tech, and you're earning your doctorate in nurse practitioning at the (laughs) University of Texas, Houston. Mm -hmm. So here's my question. Sure. I've had a cold for about 70 years now. <laughs> and I have a sense it's getting a little better. Okay. But I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So the question is, do things have to get worse before they get better? So that's a great question, Ron. And, and you know, your perception, of course, is that, yeah, it, it does feel like it's getting worse. Um, but your symptoms actually may truly be improving, but the cough is there and the voice hoarseness. So it kind of feels like it's getting worse, but your lungs are starting to clear up and they're starting to get that phlegm out. So even though it feels like it's worse for you, your body says, I'm forcing this stuff up. So I'm actually getting better. But sometimes that thick phlegm, and we've talked about that on other shows, that just is the most disgusting stuff ever. But that thick phlegm, tends to make people feel like they're getting worse because they say, well, I didn't have this productive, the productive cough before. And now I do. So I feel like I'm getting worse, but no fevers, no chills. The cough is getting better because it's not just that dry cough anymore. It's now productive and you're actually getting rid of it. So while it feels like you're getting worse, you're actually getting better. Sometimes diseases are like that, though, that you do feel like you get worse for a a specific amount of time until you until your body says, nope, I'm good. It it was just tricking you. (laughs) Well, I can remember and I haven't had the flu knock wood in a long time. Mm -hmm. But the morning you wake up and say, hey, I'm feeling better. Right, right. You don't feel like uh, a a Mack truck has just run over you and and backed up and run over you again. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting you say the flu. This year, uh, the 2018-2019 flu season, uh, I was just talking about this with a physician the other day. And and I asked because last year's flu season, the 17-18 flu season was absolutely horrific. We saw so many hospitalizations. We saw increased um, ER visits. And and for many of our seniors, even though they received the flu vaccine. Now, we do know that the flu vaccine does not give you the flu. But we don't, what, what we what people don't understand is that it triggers your immune system. And so sometimes you actually feel like you're getting sick because it's your immune system, immune system kicking in. But last year's flu vaccine, now you got to remember it's a stab in the dark. They do not know the the actual strain of flu that's coming out. They take their best guess from the years prior. So they created this flu vaccine, and last year's just did not seem to do the job well enough. So we saw a lot of people who, despite getting the high-dose flu vaccine, still got the flu, and then it turned to pneumonia and had other complications. But this year, and again, knock wood, this year the flu vaccine seems to have been working a whole lot better than it did last year, which is good news for many of our seniors who have, you know, reduced immunity and and have a harder time, you know, getting over the the small cold or cough or sinus issue. And uh, children too, infants. Absolutely. So they have a weaker immune system too. So, you know, once once the infant goes into daycare and I, I you know, I'm Love that infants are raised and and babysat by their grandparents that they're actively involved in their lives, but sometimes sending them to make the choice to at least send them two days a week to a daycare when they're you know two years old and up or whenever you have to go back to work sometimes actually is good for the child because it's like I tell you before I tell my kids go lick the doorknobs or go eat the dirt because you're building your immune system up. My kids were sick throughout daycare. But when they got into school and in their preschool, I mean, in their kindergarten on up, they rarely missed any school days because they had built their immune system. Kids are little Petri dishes. Absolutely. I, I had a patient one time who is a bus driver for an elementary school. Oh, and he said. Exposed says, to everything. He said, he said, 
I don't drive children. I drive germs disguised as yes. children. They're yes. wearing children's suits. <laughs> I said, you're Boy, exactly that is, right. That is so true. And, you know, he said that he, the first couple of years of bus driving were, were really difficult for him, much like a first-year teacher, really, really difficult for him. He says, now I could probably go and lick every seat where those kids have been, and my <laughs> immune system is great. Let's hope he doesn't. Let's hope he doesn't. <laughs> Folks also forget that flu can kill and does kill. Absolutely. You know, flu flu is, it compromises your immune system. And if you already have a compromised immune system, then it further com- you, you further decompensate. And you're open up to things like pneumonia because it weakens the respiratory system. It makes it more difficult to breathe. You have that cough. So people who have these impending diseases already or these chronic diseases like COPD or asthma that's getting worse, they have a harder time coughing up the phlegm and removing it from their lungs because they have, you know, a a reduced um, ability to make that, make their lungs a good pump to to cough that stuff up. If you just joined us, you're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke, nurse practitioner. And I wanted to shift to something that Cora brought up this morning as we were talking about topics for today's show. And it was an interesting combination Uh, The question of hospitalization, depression, and chronic disease, and how do they all tie together? So it's it's really it's, it's a great topic, and and I tell you why because not only am I doing my um, you know evidence based practice quality improvement project for WellMed um, on this for my doctorate, but there really is such a strong tie between the three. So think about this: think about our senior population. Think about the amount of chronic diseases or the amount of medications that they take. Think about they have high blood pressure, maybe they have atrial fibrillation, maybe they. They have COPD, maybe they have diabetes, maybe they have um, a type of cancer, maybe they're just getting over cancer. So think about all of these chronic diseases. And when I see these patients in the clinic, they come in with a bag of medicine, the bag OMEDs. You have Jack O'Lantern, we have bag OMEDs, right? And and many of them use huge grocery sacks for these meds. Seriously? Yes. And, and we always ask patients, no matter who you are, if you're a well-med patient or not, take every single med with you to the clinic for the doctor to review or your provider to review. Even the over-the-counter supplements, because they need to make sure that there's no, what I consider like cross-contamination of these medications, that not one of them is interacting or affecting the other medication or your, your disease processes. So you think about they have all these diseases, okay? And I say all these diseases. If I had three or more diseases, that's a lot of diseases. That's, you know, do I, do I even eat or do I take pills and fill myself up? Okay, those are some of the questions that I get asked on a daily basis. So think about the chronic diseases. Now, think about that patient just gets the flu. They have diabetes. They have high blood pressure. They have hyperthyroid um, disease. They have COPD, so they have a hard time breathing. Maybe they're on some oxygen. So now they get the flu. They've been vaccinated against the flu, but it just didn't work. Now they've got these fevers. What do they do? The first place they go is to the emergency room. And when they're tested in the emergency room for flu, they look at their decompensation in their disease processing, and they say, guess what? You're going to be admitted. Well, guess what happens when they get admitted? They get sicker. They get sicker. They get sicker. They don't get to rest. They get, you know, maybe their nutrition status goes down because they don't like the food. So they get sicker. They're exposed to people. They're exposed to germs. So then what happens? Well, they get depressed. I think I'd be depressed if I were chronically ill, now had a, an acute disease, I'm hospitalized, exposed to further diseases. Of course you're going to be depressed. But the interesting part is you have good reason to be depressed. You do have good reason to be depressed. What's really interesting... I don't know that that makes a difference, no, but, but, but you, you do. do. You do have reason to be depressed. And, and that is something that, I'll be honest with you, when they come out for their transition visit to see their PCP... Guess what? We don't address it. We do not address their depression. We don't even ask them if they're feeling depressed unless they volunteer the information. And then what do we do with that information? It's, it's this cycle, right? It's a vicious cycle. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the depression trigger the chronic diseases or did the chronic diseases trigger the depression? We don't know that. We, we don't know. Only the patient knows that and they may not even be able to, to narrow it down. So if they are depressed, mm-hmm. 
and they bring it up. Do you try to treat that as well? Well, you should. And that's part of the quality improvement project that I'm wanting to do. Actually, actually, we want to back up there, though, before the transition visit. Where are transition they Transition meaning when they re- when they release from the hospital. Out of the hospital and they have their follow-up appointment. And at WellMed, we really try to get them in no later than seven days after a hospitalization because that is the key time that you need to discuss new medications, you need to discuss new diagnoses, get any, you know, DME, which is that durable medical equipment that they may need, walkers, canes, anything like that, and identify new diseases. Now let me ask you, while you're in the hospital, uh, WellMed has hospitalists yes. in the hospital mm-hmm. who are WellMed employees working right. with WellMed patients who are hospitalized. Now, does that minimize prescribing drugs that may interact negatively with the drugs that patients already are. Well, it, it should. It should. If the process is unbroken, then it should. But what happens when the electronic medical record goes down and the hospitalist has no access to those and the patient hasn't brought their medications from home? So the hospitalist is kind of taking a stab in the dark saying, I think this is what you're on. You know, that's a very, very daunting task for a hospitalist. What we also know, though, is is in the hospital, these patients aren't seeing their doctor. They're seeing a hospitalist. They don't know this hospitalist. They've never seen them before in their life. And while they're reassured that they work for WellMed, and I will communicate with your doctor, still a little depressing because now you're having to go and explain your history to somebody who doesn't know you, who you don't have this relationship with. And patients from other healthcare providers uh, and uh, Medicare or Medicare Advantage programs may not have their own corporate hospitalists. That's correct. Who are they seen by? So a lot of times the hospitals will employ their own hospitalists group or like Baptist. Baptist has its own hospitalist group. So for those patients who don't have an established primary care provider, they'll put them with that that hospitalist. And while those hospitalists are great, a lot of times there's a breakdown in communication between the discharge you know, the, the hospitalist and the, and the PCP during that discharge time frame. What we have seen in research, though, is that patients are not screened for that depression before they're discharged from the hospital. So when the hospitalist is talking to the primary care provider, they can't say, hey, listen, I did a screening and I'm noticing that this patient's depression is either getting worse or, hey, this patient didn't have any underlying depression and now they're depressed. So when you when I'm going to start a medication or I'm going to recommend these, you know, X, Y, and Z treatments, I want you to follow up with them. And so who ends up losing out? Well, the patient does. Now, what kind of screening can be done? So there's lots of different screening tools. And that's, that's one thing that I'm looking at with the research. I'm, I'm looking at what screening tool is actually the best tool. Right now, we use, and, and this is a standard, I guess, an industry standard across any Medicare Advantage plan. We use a screening tool called the PHQ-9, which stands for the Patient Healthcare Questionnaire. And it has nine questions. And it deals with depression. And it de- deals with depression in the last last two weeks. So you don't want to really ask them during that that acute phase, which we always say, okay, if the patient comes in and they have the flu, don't ask them those questions because of course they're going to answer positively. But is that really the right thing to do? Do we really want to focus on something that's more acute? And I think that's the tool is finding another tool besides the PHQ-9 that doesn't just look at two weeks, that looks at that acute snapshot or that acute period of time, and then translates that to what happens between that time and 30 days later. Because we know that Medicare does not like it, and it and it really puts patients at risk for that 30-day rehospitalization. It costs a lot of dollars for patients to go back into the hospital. It costs a lot of quality of life, too, for patients to be readmitted, whether it's for that same condition or for another condition. And Medicare has said, look, you guys are not doing it good enough, which means the primary care providers. We're going to hold you accountable for it, and we're not going to pay you if you can't keep patients healthy. And so that is one of the new... It's a pretty good incentive for keeping them healthier. Well, of course. And it's a good incentive for making a partnership between the provider and the patient to figure out how can we do this. Because not only is it just tied to money, it's tied to quality of life. Where do I want my patients? I want them at home. I want them enjoying their grandkids. I want them enjoying birthday parties and family not a hospital where things are beeping and annoying and the food is terrible and nobody's coming to visit because they just don't have time. Wow. 
Yeah, it, it's really a it's a it's a big healthcare gap that we need to overcome. And I'm working um, with the literature, doing a huge literary search to figure out what the best options are. Hold that thought. You're listening to WellMed Radio on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Cora Juke. You hear us Sundays at 5 p.m. and we look forward to you joining us. Carol Zornio, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS on air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. And there's a nice thing about the segue between WellMed Radio and Caregiver SOS on air. We come to you at 5 p.m. Sundays, and Caregiver SOS on air is at 6, so you get two hours of great health-related radio and we encourage you to join us if you can't join in or you want to hear a show again they're all available on podcast just google the name of the show wellmet radio or caregiver sos on air and the podcast should pop up they're available as well on itunes i'm ron aaron along with our co-host cora juke nurse practitioner we're talking about hospitalization depression chronic disease and how they all tie together now a guy i used to know in washington dc dr Sidney wolf He was one of the founders, along with Ralph Nader, of the Health Research Group, which took a look at a lot of these issues. He wrote a book on the last place you want to be when you're sick is the hospital. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you think about, think about all the things that you're exposed to, you know, but you're away from your family. And that in itself, you don't have your normal resources at home that you have. You know, you, you have nurses that you're not used to. And while they're waiting on you hand on foot and they're very, very kind, you still don't want to be there. You want to be at home. And, and they don't. Honestly, the nurses while they love you while you're there, they want you to be at home too. They want to improve your quality of life. The other thing, you know, thinking about the the commercial that we just heard of, of Caregiver SOS or the advertisement is, is think about what happens to the caregiver when the patient comes home. You know, they're hospitalized and all these new medications are being prescribed, all these new diagnoses and new ways to care for the patient. If they were experiencing a burden before the patient went in, can you imagine the pressure and the stress on the caregiver when they come out trying to figure out what do I do with these meds? Which med is most important? What about financial resources as well? So again, if the, if the caregiver is overwhelmed and they start to get depressed, what does that do to the patient? It makes them depressed as well. Now, one of the other issues is wound care mm-hmm. because many caregivers are, uh, once a patient comes home, if they'd had surgery, uh, they need to deal with that wound. Absolutely. And, and that can be very, very difficult for people. You know, you don't know the the training that caregivers have. Um, you don't know their fears. Um, and so that's something that needs to be discussed, especially before they leave the hospital with the hospitalist or the case managers and the nurses. It's up to the nurses to, to identify and to, to communicate with the physicians. Hey, listen, while well, you said that you you know, you talked to the daughter and the daughter agreed to do this wound care. When I actually did the wound care and had the daughter return the demonstration, she was very apprehensive. She really didn't want to do it. She kept self-doubting and saying, I don't think I can do this. So that's where I think that we need to bring home health care in to help with this. You know, we want to save dollars. We really want to save patients dollars and, and we want to save Medicare dollars because we know that healthcare is very expensive. But we need to really think about what the patient needs and the costliness of what happens if we send them home trying to save a buck and they end up coming back for a 30-day rehospitalization. What does that do? It Well, it ends up costing 
twice or three times the amount that it would have if we just got physical therapy. And even more depressing for the patient. Well, of course. Now, it is depressing to have to come back. And, and Medicare has actually set a new guideline now. So the newest guidelines came out for 2019, and, and they're subject to change at any time. But they wait. You know, if you go on Medicare.gov and you're looking for a health plan, you're, if, if it were me and I'm looking or looking for my mother or my grandmother, I'm going to go with the highest star rated program, right? I I would not pick a, a single star rating when they go up from one to five. If there is a five star program out there that my my grandmother could get into, why would I choose an insurance program with one star? <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make sense. Just like I'm not going to choose a hospital that is rated at one or two stars. I'm going to rate. Yeah, but very often the patient doesn't pick the hospital. That's true. In fact, I tried that when I had my uh, uh, knee surgery. Mm-hmm. I said to Dr. Pontius, you know, I, I really would rather go here rather than there. Mm-hmm. And he said, but, you know, the people I work with, the experience I have, the anesthesiologist, uh, the operating room, uh, I'm comfortable at where I ended up, which was Texan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's really unfortunate that patients don't have a voice in where they go. And I really believe that they should. I believe that patients should be able to advocate for themselves and say, look, I understand you're comfortable here, but I am the paying customer and I am comfortable here. And that should be who makes the call. So I understand the comfort. I mean, as a provider, I understand both sides of it. I've now, been is, on both sides. Is there sides. a difference between hospitals Absolutely. in terms of because an operation's an operation, right? Well, you would think so, unless you get an infection. And then is an operation an operation? No, you die. Well, or you go in for more operations. You know, unfortunately, I I had a very good friend um, who lost her leg because of a hospital. And the hospital, if you go on Medicare.gov, and of course, she isn't on Medicare. She wasn't on Medicare at the time. She is now. Um, She's since crossed over into 65. But she... uh, at the time, she needed knee surgery, and it was a total knee replacement. She was young, but she had just worn the thing down. It was it, the whole the whole joint was just horrible, and and so they took her to a hospital. And she went on Medicare.gov and looked and shopped for different hospitals, and and she ended up going to a two star rated hospital. And despite all of her efforts with the doctor to say, hey, listen, I don't want to go here. I would rather, I'm more comfortable and I'd rather go to this hospital. And the doctor said the same thing, you know, nope, I, I'm going to take you where I'm comfortable. I know the staff. I know everything's great. And, you know, un, unwillingly and reluctantly, she agreed and she had her surgery. Well, guess what? It ended up that she needed three more surgeries until the final surgery was actually to amputate below the knee or actually at the knee. I guess it was at the knee. They disarticulated it. But what happened is she got an infection. The instruments were dirty. And if you looked at the surgical website, if you if you looked at because they have each each procedure, like a total knee, a total hip, hearts and gut surgeries have to be reported to Medicare. You have to, and CMS or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services actually sets the bar on the rating system. It's not Blue Cross, it's not Aetna, it's, it's Medicare because they are the federal government. So if you looked at their website, on their SKIPS website, which is the Surgical Complication website, you could actually see that these patients were getting exposed to pseudomonal infections, which is a particular bug. And uh, these these people were working with dirtier instruments. They had maybe an autoclave issue, not quite sure. But consistently, their, their surgical rating was poor. Well, they should have closed the hospital down. But they don't. They don't. Um, it's still rated as it's still rated today as a two star. And so she ended up losing her leg. Now, there was a lawsuit and um, she did she did win. But the, the money doesn't bring the your leg back. The money doesn't bring your leg back. And it also doesn't bring you that peace of mind either. But so, it should be a message to the hospital. To, 
if the recovery is big enough to clean up their act. Absolutely. And, and you know, they get inspected and there are certain there are certain criteria that they have to meet when they get inspected. And I think this hospital is going through some some inspections as we speak um, and audits and, and hopefully they will improve their game. You know, that's what they owe these patients. Right. You should not have your doors open if you're if you're not performing to standard. So maybe they're meeting the standard, but they're not exceeding the standard. I want to go to the place that's exceeding the standard. Now, the hospital denied liability in that case? Well, of course they did. Of course they did. And they ended up settling out of court. Um, But don't let that happen to you. Shop your hospitals, talk with your doctors, and express your concerns. This is is your right as a patient to do. And if you find that your doctor is, is not willing to go to a different hospital, ask them, then what is the star rating for that particular hospital? If you can show me that it's this, okay, I'll be okay with that. Now, a lot of orthopedic surgeons will not go to certain rated hospitals. They they are very cautious about that because they don't they don't want their their surgical infection rates to go through the roof because it's also a reflection on them. Sure. So, you know, I know that Texan has has a great star rating. They they do very well. So that was a good thing. But in the case of certain hospitals, you know, patients should be able to advocate for themselves because it leads to depression. Well, I will tell you, Doctor uh, Pontius is now retired. I was his last surgery, not good. Mine came out well. Uh, He explained to me about infection Mm -hmm. before and after the surgery. Mm -hmm. He explained what we had to do for wound care. Uh, He explained what I shouldn't do. Uh, He explained that if I needed to get my toenails cut, go to a podiatrist uh, simply because they're trained to do that. and You know their instruments are going to be clean. And then he talked about uh, how dangerous an infection can be. You and know, once it gets in that knee, they got to redo the entire surgery and you run the risk of even more infection. You're exactly right. You know, there's a lot of orthopedic surgeons out there. In fact, most of the orthopedic surgeons, a lot of just general surgeons in general, will not operate on you if you have a cut somewhere else. So they'll actually ask you, do you have an open wound anywhere else on your body? And you think, well, you know, I had an infection where that splinter hit me in my finger. And they'll say, then today is not the right day for us to operate. Because? Because, well, you're immunocompromised. Your white blood cells have already gone to that infection and they're trying to fight that. What happens if they're trying to fight the knee? They're going to take precedence over the infected finger. So... You're already exposed. You've already weakened the immune system and opened yourself up for portal for infection. You know, that's why we're very cautious about catheters. We look at catheter infection rates. We look at central line infection rates. We look now, at what is a central line? Central line is a centralized. I don't know how you point to it when you're a, talking, a but this is radio. Sure, it's a centralized um, IV that goes directly into the bloodstream quickly. It's a larger bore catheter. You can give, um, it doesn't hurt. You know, you can give a lot more medications through it faster. Um, and it can stay in longer. So IVs have to be changed out every 72 hours. These things will stay in, and you just have to change the bandage. Um, but again, it goes right, it feeds right in next to the heart. So the medication is processed rapidly. Um, chemotherapy agents, sometimes dialysis catheters will be introduced this way. Um, People who um, are going to have heart surgery, they'll have a central line. So it's just when you need to access something very rapidly and not have to change out the catheters constantly. But we look at those infections. We look at them all the time, and hospitals are having to report that all the time. And they're constantly looking for process improvements on or quality improvements on how they can reduce those. And is it a particular person who's causing them? Is it a particular um, method of changing the catheter that's causing them? Is it a is it a, a solution? that we're using or a chemical that we're using? Is it masks? I mean, that's how you start to see how people have changed in healthcare. I mean, if you look at healthcare five years ago, it's not the same that it is today. Really? Of course, because we're constantly improving our processes. Now, I remember before my surgery, and I'm sure it's true of every other surgery, uh, Dr. Pontius had me use a special soap mm-hmm. uh, to kill bacteria on my skin. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'll just do my leg. And he said, no, no, no. 
You have to do your whole body. Right. It's head to toe. You want to you wanna wash everything just in case there's little nooks and crannies that, you know, you don't think about it. But for women who shave their under their arms, you know, you could nick yourself right there. You want to make sure that you're already starting to fight these infections that you may not even know about. Right. You know, in the skin, let's face it, this is our frontline barrier. So when we touch things, we touch things every day that are absolutely disgusting. And you don't think about it, but you want to wash that bacteria off because you cannot sterilize the skin. You can only clean the skin cannot sterilize it so when you use those special soaps how long are they good for well you're wanting to wash it the night before surgery because you're still wanting to be able to build up your own good bacteria on your skin you know your skin fights bacteria all the time and so you don't want to wash the good stuff off you know you still have good stuff that fights it so you want to give it about 24 hours before the procedure or the night before I guess I wouldn't do it the morning of I would do it the night before your surgery that way you're able to still build back up your own your own good bugs that are working on your behalf. You're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke, who is a nurse practitioner working on her PhD at the University of Texas, Houston. And we're talking about ways that when you go into the hospital, depression may follow, chronic disease may already be there and may follow. Uh, as you take a look at uh, discharge from the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, often for the patient, it's very confusing. It is. You know, very somebody confusing. stands there, reads a bunch of stuff, you pay no attention, you put your initials on it, which would indicate you knew what it meant. Right. And often it does not. Right. Uh, what do you recommend to uh, help that patient get a better understanding of? Uh, what's needed once they're discharged? Well, you know, it's important in the hospital that healthcare providers use the teach back method. You know, you can sit there and I can tell you, I can give you line by line instructions on exactly what you're to do. Say I'm going to give you um, a math problem and I say, okay, Ron, I want you to go step number one. I want you to do this. Step number two, I want you to do this. And by the time I get to step number 10, you don't even remember what I said for step number one. And then you sit there and stare at a deer, like a deer in the headlights, looking at this problem and saying, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. But what have you done? You didn't want to look dumb in front of me, right? So you're going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I walk out of the room. Right. I walk out of the room and and I don't think about the fact that you don't know what I said for number one. And then by the time I walk out of the room, number 10 is out the window too. And all you want to do as a patient is go home. Right. And and nurses, unfortunately, sometimes all they want to do is move on to the next call light. Unfortunately, you know, we, we, we spend less time truly figuring out, did our patient understand what we just said? The same thing with medications, you know, as a provider, when I send my patients home, if I haven't given them written instructions and then assessed if they know how to read, <laughs> that's the other part. Because some of our patients are illiterate and can't read. So if I give them a paper and expect them to read it, that hasn't done them any good. It's interesting. Our friends at the Health Collaborative, uh, run by Elizabeth Lutz, uh, run an annual symposium on health literacy, dealing with many of those issues. Mm-hmm. A patient, for example, who may claim they're bilingual but can't really read right. uh, in one language or the other, mm-hmm. uh, ends up with instructions in the wrong language. And they have no idea what it says. Right, right. And that happens all the time. So what I do find is that you can repeat the motion or the instructions of somebody else. And you can either verbally or you can show them. And so I love return demonstrations. And that's why in wound care, it's so important. You have a patient advocate there, which is their family member. Who is going to supervise their wound care? Who is going to do their wound care? Or who's going to be there to supervise the clinician coming into the home to make sure they're doing the wound care correctly? Because a lot of times families will stop home health care workers and say, That's not what they showed me in the hospital. And so that's great. It's amazing when I have family members who will step up and say, "Mm -mm, that's not what we were shown, only because we've done return demonstration. So when you're in the clinic with me and I have to show you how to take care of a wound, I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to remove everything. And then I'm going to say, now you do it. And that works because once you do one, it's the military way, right? See one, do one, teach one. But once you've done it, you you understand the concept and the theory behind it. Okay, now I understand that I got to put this cream on because this blocks, you know, the barrier, it blocks the, the moisture, it blocks the bacteria. Because I'm telling patients, now just put this cream on. I don't say that. I say you put the cream on to reduce infection. 
you take this medication for blood pressure. What do you take this medication for? I take it for blood pressure. But it's that repetition with patients. That's when they understand. So have the patient repeat back to you. Always. And always on medication bottles, too. It's not just about wound care, but medication bottles. When I prescribe in the the clinic, um, I prescribe a new medication. Do you know I will never prescribe more than two at a time? Because I want the patient to, one, be able to understand what I've just told them about two different medications and not be overwhelmed. Oh, my goodness, I've got three or four pills now that I have to take that are new. Instead, I start with two, and then I bring them back. So if it's for blood pressure or cholesterol or diabetes, it's always two, no more than two. And I write on the bottles in my prescription, if your doctor's not doing this, you need to ask them to do it. I'll say, lisinopril 20 milligrams, take one by mouth, In the morning, I don't tell them daily, I say in the morning or in the evening, with food or on an empty stomach, this medication is for blood pressure. And I do that because if you ever had to call 911 for a family member and they say, well, are they on any blood pressure medications? And you say, I I don't know. Well, look at their bottles. Well, I I don't know what this is for. It can say... This one's for blood pressure. Yes, they take it for blood pressure. And patients then will understand, I'm on three medications for blood pressure. They might not remember the names, but they'll remember that they're on three medications for blood pressure, and that helps a clinician as well. Now, I remember uh, once I was diagnosed with uh, AFib, atrial fibrillation, uh, I was prescribed several medications, Mm -hmm. uh, which over time changed as they tried to adjust what my heart rate was. Right. Uh, And it was tough for me, and I've got most of my faculties, Mm -hmm. uh, keeping track Mm -hmm. of when I take them, when I don't take them. Mm Uh, and uh, it, it can be very confusing, I can imagine, for somebody who may have some slight cognitive disorder, uh, they may have terrible problems figuring out what to take and when to take it. Well, of course, and so many of these medications are look-alike and sound-alike, right? So well, let me remind you of that, because I was, this is a couple years ago, I don't take many medications, but we were going on a trip to Corpus Christi, and I figured, I don't need all these bottles, I just took the pills mm-hmm. and put them all in a Ziploc bag because I know what each one looks like. But they all look alike. They don't all they? looked alike you don't except think for about one it. or two. Yeah. You don't think oh, about it, was, it. It was crazy. Yeah. And and the same thing happens all the time. You so know, it's not just me. No, oh, but good. think about this. Okay, so we have two medications and they're for two separate things completely. So you have lisinopril and you have lamictal. So if I'm taking both lisinopril and lamictal, lisinopril is for your blood pressure and kidney protection, and lamictal is actually a mood stabilizer. So say I tell the patient, patient calls me and says, my blood pressure has been high for three days. I've been taking it at home. And I say, I want you to take your lisinopril. I want you to take that medication for blood pressure. I want you to take two of them today. And say they look at the bottles and they say, I think she said lamictal. So they take a mood stabilizer. Well, that could actually hurt them. You know, it could it could hurt their mood. Um, it could make them um, suicidal. I mean, it just, you, when you're messing with somebody's chemicals, that's a problem. Plus they're not getting the blood pressure medication. Plus they're not getting the blood pressure medication, and that would affect my mood as well. So you, you really have to make sure as a clinician that you are writing on the bottles what these medications are for. Because if one says for mood and the other one says for blood pressure and she says, well, my blood pressure is up, then I know I'm going to take this one even though they sound alike. So it's, it's working with patients on where they're at, not just always giving a written instruction. A lot of times on labs, I'm very, I love, I draw and I'm not a great you know, artist or anything, but I, I draw happy faces and, you know, stars and things like that. But on, on cholesterol. Well, you're a mom. Every mom does Well, that. sure, sure. And, and, and giving them the, you know, giving them the gold star. But on their um, lab data, I will put stars next to good cholesterol, uh, sad faces next to bad cholesterol, because they may not understand the word G-O-O-D or B-A-D. They may not be able to comprehend that, but they understand happy faces and sad faces for good and bad cholesterol. I give them stars for their, you know, um, A1C, which is their three-month collection of blood sugar. So they can say, I got a gold star today. And I'll give them, you know, a thumbs down if it's, you know, 13 and is not controlled so that they know what they have to work on. They are given their marching orders because I only get to see them for a snapshot in time. Interesting. I have to tell Dr. Presses to do that. Yeah. 
yeah, you know, it really helps. And and it's it's nice. He being because, my PCP. Sure, sure. Patients love being praised. Who doesn't, right? Who I love being praised as well when I do a good job. And so I have people who will actually put that lab data up on their refrigerator and bring it with them the next time because they want to see that happy face. They want to see that they've actually put in the work because they're proud of it. Hey, I actually did really good today or I, I did really good this, you know, this three months and, and I want a happy face. I want you to turn that frown upside down. And so I'm able to do that for them. And that gives them the motivation to to want to please me even more because they're really pleasing themselves. It's a great thing. Now, it's interesting. In every medical office in the universe, I suspect this happens. Uh, you're in the lobby and the nurse comes out, maybe an MA, maybe a nurse practitioner, uh, maybe the doctor, and they take you back. And the first thing they do is weigh you. Is weigh you. Yeah, or check yes. your blood pressure when it's elevated. Yes, or check your blood pressure right after you've been weighed. <laughs> And you're freaking out a little bit, yeah. Yeah, it is um it is a sad, sad vital sign sometimes that we have to take. And and believe it or not, many providers don't like weighing themselves either. You know, one time our scale went down and so they wanted us to calibrate our scale and, and the, the gentleman that was working on it, he said, Hey, can you come here for a second? I, I weighed myself, but I want to make sure that the calibration is right. Do you know how much you weigh? And I said, Yes. And he 103. Says, can you get on the scale for me? And I said, No. <laughs> I cannot get on that scale for you. Now, that's more <laughs> female than male, I suspect. Actually, no. Really? You'd be surprised. Yes, we have a lot of men who do not want to get on the scale. Really? Yeah, they don't want to get on the scale. Um, I, I don't, I, I would think it's a vanity issue, but there's a lot of men out there that, yeah, they're, they don't want to tell you their weight. Now, when you get on a scale in the doctor's office, you take your shoes off? I do. Take the keys out of your... I empty my pockets. Yes, yes. Me too. I I take my bracelets off. I I feel like I'm going through a metal detector. Which weigh like nothing. Right. I feel like I'm going through a metal detector at the the airport. But I want a true weight. And I even tell him, look, I haven't had anything to drink this morning or eat. I want a dry weight. (laughs) And I wear the lightest clothes, you know, that, that don't weigh a whole lot. But but it's it's yeah it it's not fun and that can be depressing too and so you get back as a provider you get back in the room with the patient and they just are kind of looking down and you know the worst thing that you can say is up oh, you've gained weight even though it is an observation it's a true observation um, it's not an it, you know it's not a fictitious number or it's not you know I'm 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 just um, pulling something out of the air, but it's it's real, and we do have to watch weight because it tells us a lot about their chronic diseases. What does it tell you? Well, say the patient has heart failure. If the patient has heart failure, they're going to congest with a lot of fluid. They're going to retain that fluid down in the lower extremities usually or around the lungs. And say they've gained, you know, the last time they were here three months ago, they weighed, or a couple months ago, they weighed, um, say, 173. And two to three months later, now they're at 195. That's going to tell me a whole lot. You've been eating too much salt. 22 pounds in three months. Yeah, and it happens. It happens a lot because fluid is very, very heavy. Think about... Um, one gallon of fluid equals eight pounds. One gallon is eight pounds. Wow. And so sometimes I get on the scale and I really do believe that I had a gallon to drink or I'm retaining a gallon of water because that eight pound fluctuation. Now we expect people, you know, over three months, maybe five or six pounds, but not an extraordinary amount of weight. And we see it a lot. And that's when we tell them, hey, listen, you're, you're, your disease process is not controlled. So put them on a diuretic. Get rid of the you, water. You do, but you have to be cautious because then you're going to also, also pull potassium and other electrolytes off. So give them potassium pills. Well, you can do that, but have you ever seen the size of a potassium pill? Yes, I've taken them. Nobody wants to swallow them, it's right? It's a horse pill. It is a horse pill. And so some of these In fact, my little, horse wouldn't even take right, them. Right. So some of these little old ladies and little, little gentlemen, they say, how am I going to swallow that? And eat, you know, and I say, well, this is the weight loss thing. You know, you're just taking a bunch of pills and water and then you're not going to eat, right? Ah. <laughs> it's a good weight loss. <laughs> That's funny. But you got to be careful. You know, just giving a person another pill is not the answer. You really want to educate them on their diet. You want to educate them on their diseases. And this is where healthcare workers, they tend to fail, doctors are very, very intelligent and they're going to give you a lot of good information. But are they truly good teachers? That's what you need to look for when you're looking for a doctor. Interesting. Is someone who is a good teacher. You remember your favorite teacher in high school or your favorite teacher in elementary school? Sure. Because they taught you something. 
The other ones you say, well, they went wah, 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 and I learned nothing. I have those teachers too. I don't remember anything that they taught me, but I remember the best teachers. Actually, it was a gym teacher, Mrs. Bamberger, and she was cute as could be. Uh, That's how I remember her. Yeah, yeah. Well, she taught you something. She sure did. (laughs) And uh, in the small world category, I was a uh, a fill-in mailman in Cleveland, Ohio, over the Christmas holidays. That's when people used to mail letters, Mm -hmm. and they would hire people to come in and help the regular carrier. And I had a letter needed a signature, and it was her apartment. Oh, wow. And I was, and I'm not normally tongue-tied, uh-huh. but the door opened, and there she was. Oh, wow. I couldn't believe it. Wow, I love it. Yeah. I love it. And she signed for the letter. Did you tell her you were my favorite? Yes. Oh, I bet that yeah. made her blush. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. You're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. My guess is those of you listening had a favorite teacher as well, and you can think about that while we give you a little bit of information here. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Cora Juke. Carol Zornio, we talk a lot about caregiving on Caregiver SOS On Air, but what is it? Caregiving is caring for a family member, a friend, a loved one, someone who's in your life that needs help with bathing, dressing, buying groceries, medical appointments. If you do any of those things, you're a caregiver. And how can this program help? Caregiver SOS On Air has information from people who have been caregivers, who work with caregivers. It can be book authors, scientists, doctors, the latest information on caregiving right here on KLUP. And one of the things we learn from so many folks is they fail to ask for help when they need it. Well, caregivers do need help. We don't like to ask for help, but we need it. And you'll get tips on how to ask for help and how to have a better life as a family caregiver. Plus, there's a great website you can go to, caregiversos.org. Caregiver SOS on air, Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. So I wonder if Mrs. Bamberger is listening, my old high school gym teacher. Give me a call. I'm Ron Aaron, <laughs> along with our co-host, Cora Juke, nurse practitioner, working on her uh, Ph.D. at the University of Texas, Houston. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., the answer, and we were talking about uh, issues facing folks who have been hospitalized, depression, chronic disease, and, and a whole lot more. Talk to me a, a little bit. We were talking about weight, mm-hmm. and we've told the story many times about you lost weight as a challenge patient, gave mm-hmm. you, and you've done pretty well. Mm-hmm. The problem that most folks have is the yo-yo problem. They take it off, they put it on. They take it off, they put it on. Is there a cure for that? There really isn't a cure for it. Oh, thank you very much. And it happens all the time. It's not what I wanted to hear. It happens to the best of us. You know, myself, I've even gained a little bit back and and kind of taken it off and gained it back, but not all of it. But it really is a lifestyle change. You know, weight loss should be a journey. It shouldn't be a sprint. So you think about that journey. You think about the things that you learned along the way when you're losing weight. And that's why it's really not good to go on fad diets and take pills pills for diets because what is the the expectation is that you're going to have to continue with these medications all your life because without them you're not going to lose the weight you're going to be hungry so you have to retrain your body and your metabolism once your stomach shrinks that you're not going to go after the donuts you're going to go after the salad so you have to just think about better eating choices most of us eat too much and that is the biggest issue if you look at the portion size 20 years ago to now you know we have you know, chicken fried steaks that are falling off the plate. They're so big and baked potatoes that are so large. And well, we the plates live, are even bigger. Yes. And we live in Texas and we expect things to be bigger in Texas and the, the prices go up. And so we expect things to be proportional to the price, you know, to the prices. But unfortunately, that's not proportional to the what, what our body actually needs. And so... The dinners of today, um, I love this thing, you know, the meal portions um, that are coming, like the HelloFresh and these different things, because they're actually proportional. They're, they're portionate and correct for the way we should be eating rather than the way we want to eat. I tell people all the time, when you're looking to go to a restaurant and you're looking to eat, 
eat until you're satisfied, until the hunger pain goes away and eat slow and drink a whole glass of water before you start eating because you're going to eat less. Have conversation. Put one hand in your lap on top of your napkin and the other one on your fork and eat nothing with your fingers because you eat faster when you eat with your hands. You're kind of shoveling it in, right? A fork only holds so much. Stab your food rather than scooping it. So there's little tricks that you can do um, to to help yourself monitor the portions that you eat. That's why I can't eat peanuts. I agree, and, and chips are really bad too. I can eat four too. peanuts, and then one hundred and fifty, and then yes, and and the same the same with a lot of people. You know, chips are the, one of those addictive. Medi- it's like an addictive. What's the latest commercial? But you can't eat one, right? Or like the Pringles. Once you pop, you just can't stop, and they're right. And so. The chip manufacturers know that. They know that you're not going to buy one bag of chips. You're going to buy the whole, you know, the whole case of chips um, because you can't stop eating them. And so I tell people, look, what you need to do is you need to count out your portion and walk away. It's the same with smoking. Take out a cigarette, crumple it up and throw it away rather than putting it on the top of the trash pile because you'll, you'll go get it. It's like that. You look at it's like a Seinfeld episode. You look at it and you're like, "Mm, didn't touch anything. I think I can do that. (laughs) So you need that voice in your head, not from schizophrenia, but the voice that says, Cora, step away from the food. Yes. Yes. The Jiminy Cricket, if you will. The Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder to say, don't eat it. Don't eat it. You don't need it. You know, as much as you crave, you walk by and, and things look beautiful. That's why sweets are so attractive because they're so pretty. They're packaged beautifully. Cupcakes are absolutely attractive to the eye. And so you see them and, and it may not, you know, bring you satisfaction for a long period of time, but just for that few seconds. And then you get the guilt of, I shouldn't have eaten that. So instead, go eat something. Don't ever look at sweets on an empty stomach. Go eat something first. Get full. And then look at the sweets and say, yeah, I don't need that. Well, Google a story in the Express News uh, a little while ago talking about chocolate and how it is child slave labor that picks most of the cocoa beans, over 80% in the world, picked by children, forced into labor. Isn't that sad? It is sad. And the more chocolate you eat, the more kids are out there picking. You know, the way I see it is if we want chocolate, we should hire, you know, Americans to go over and pick the chocolate because the the ones that are wanting to eat it, if you're a consumer, then you should be the picker. It's hard work. It is hard work. Wow. The same with tobacco. You know, when I was a kid, I used to go to North Carolina and my uncle had a tobacco farm and I used to actually go and pick the tobacco. We're going to have to talk about this on another show because we are flat Uh out of time. Cora Juke, thank you so much. I'm Ron Aaron. She is our co-host, nurse practitioner, right here on WellMed Radio. Remember, our podcasts are available. Just Google WellMed Radio and they will pop up. Thanks for joining us on 930 AM, The Answer. We'll talk with you again soon. You've been enjoying WellMed Radio, an exclusive presentation of WellMed Medical Management. Join us next week for more on your health and well-being. For more information on WellMed or to hear this broadcast again, go to wellmedmedicalgroup.com. We'll see you next week on WellMed Radio.